0: Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. With your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner.
1: Episode one, in which we introduce ourselves and Chris explains why the US History Survey must die.
0: I'm Chris Padgett, Uh, you know, for the last 30 plus years I've been part of the proletariat of higher education in this country. Uh, That is to say, history professor teaching the masses of our higher education system here in California and elsewhere, Uh, most recently the last 20 plus years in the California community college system. Cue of applause. What I like to call the greatest experiment in democracy. The California community college system. Uh, A system I heartily believe in, but as uh, you'll come to see, uh, I feel that the teaching of our beloved subject matter is in need of some serious attention and reform. And I come to this, by the way, not only of my teaching career, but my training as a historian uh, from graduate school um, many years ago until now, have come to understand that this um, this, this vital and important subject is in need of some pretty serious overhaul.
1: Uh, I'm Josh Weiner, and uh, I've been a colleague of Chris's for the past 15 years now. Somehow, I came in as a young, idealistic scholar. Uh, and quickly maintained some of that idealism, certainly, but also came up against a set of structures and administration and uh, kind of barriers that tended to erode some of that idealism. Uh, Chris used to uh, joke that he was paranoid, but it's okay to be paranoid because sometimes they really are after you. And I don't know if I believed that 15 years ago, but uh, I've come around to that point of view over time. Um, but I think it's also important, you know, as much as we have to understand the challenges, understand the barriers, understand the frustrations, to not lose that sense of idealism, not lose that sense that we are doing good, even if we're doing that uh, against the grain of of what our society and what our administration, what our uh, you know state and what our nation sometimes wants us to be doing. Um, and so, this podcast is a chance for us to talk about these kind of things. But also, it's, it's trying to fill this very important niche that's really not getting filled. And that's two white guys talking to each other on a, on a podcast, which is a, a really a rare thing in this. this you know, this you
0: don't hear enough of that, do you? No, no, no.
1: So hopefully, we can, we can fill that gap, which is sounds so.
0: You know, I, I was going to say, Josh, I thought uh, you always look good in your rose colored glasses. You know, you had those, uh, I think they were Ray Bans maybe. Yeah. You wear to every department meeting, rose colored Ray Bans. And I know she hadn't been wearing them lately.
1: Is everything no, okay? No, no. You know, I, I was joking that my idealism has been eroded, but in some ways, I've had to come around to the idea that it's, it's okay to be like idealistic and it's okay to maintain idealism, even in the face of, of tough times and, and difficulties and all these kind of things. It's much easier to be cynical, but, but it is really important to, you know, to try to maintain that positivity. Yeah, even. no,
0: I, I thank you for saying that because we should clear uh, the air right away. Um, being a cynic, no, I'm not a cynic. All right. A cynic is someone I think who would disavow any possibility of anything good happening or anything, you know, any idealism of any kind. And, uh, I'm not a cynic. I'm just pissed off. Right. Uh, and I'm a skeptic, frankly. And a skeptic is not someone who would disavow, uh, you know, the possibility of something positive. It's just, I tend not to believe you the first three times you tell me, Right. You know, so that's the skeptic. But yeah, I want to, I want to, I want to add to your, your vote for the lasting importance of, of idealism.
1: Absolutely. I had a a conversation with a professor in, in undergrad. Uh, I don't remember the the context exactly, but I think I'd written something in an essay and I I was I wanted to talk to him. I don't, didn't usually go to talk to my professors, but I went in to talk to him in his office hours and he looked at my paper and he said, I think i called myself a cynic or something like that in the essay. And he said, cynicism is, he said, skepticism is healthy. Cynicism is death. Mm. And that, that just stuck with me from that point on. And uh, I have been cynical in my, my years, certainly. Uh, but it is, mm. it is important to, to kind of try to get beyond that and, and continue to have that sense of there is hope and there is things we can do. And, and even in our own small ways, you know, teaching a class of 45 to 50 students, there is a real truth that if you can reach just a couple of them. Then you really are doing something, and that, that is a legacy. Um, you know, it's not gonna fix things, but I'm increasingly of the view that you know, as individuals, we can't fix the world, we can't solve the problems. We also cannot not contribute to the decay. We can do things to, uh, to push against that, even in our own small ways. And if that means you know, getting four people out of your class of 50 to start thinking a little bit differently about the world, then that is useful and that's powerful and that's something
0: and thus history against the grain, absolutely. Uh, If the grain is represented by the endless bullshit that we're treated to in our popular culture, our media, our mythology, et cetera, uh, then we are pushing a history against that grain. And we'll have more opportunity to talk Uh, exactly about what that is, but I think it will become clear in our discussions uh, what it is we're working uh, against, you might say, as history teachers. You know, what our students bring to the table is a representation of that grain. And uh, we just have to be eternal optimists and not cynics to believe that it will matter to them, ultimately, to learn how to push against that grain.
1: No, that's absolutely right. Um, So I thought we could start by doing just something a little fun before we get into the serious stuff. And that's what we want to try to start the episodes with is a little bit of a little bit of hate. We've got to throw some hate into the into the universe. Not enough of that out there. Uh, And it's Chris's turn this week to uh, to push that. And uh, so what you're going to learn in this first segment is that Chris is one of history's greatest monsters for a very specific reason in conversations with him uh, at various points, I've learned three very important pieces of, of information and that is that Chris hates Donald Sutherland. Right? So to start there. I don't know if Donald Sutherland has that much uh uh what's the, the Q rating, is that the term we use now? Right? He's not <laughs> out in the in the popular culture all that much these days. But uh he has a an intense dislike for for Donald Sutherland. That's, you know, whatever. I don't that that's that's fine. But it's getting to the next ones that really uh, are going to get you guys angry. He also hates Morgan Freeman. And this is before all the, the other the stuff came out about him. But this has nothing to do with that. This is just a general view that you had of, of Morgan Freeman, America's greatest treasure for a moment. And then lastly,
0: and this is a new one. This
1: is, this is brand new. Tom Hanks.
0: Yeah. So explain yourself. They're the unholy trinity, uh, <laughs> uh, those three. And uh, much beloved, as we are constantly told that they are, uh, I find that in, in all three respects, these gentlemen, and I use that word advisedly, <laughs> that these gentlemen uh, represent uh, something intensely distasteful about American popular culture in our time, which is to say the, the oversaturation of certain uh, personalities, especially Morgan Freeman and Tom Hanks. I mean, Donald Sutherland never quite ascended to the the height of belovedness that Mr. Freeman and Mr. Hanks have. Uh, but I throw him in there just almost gratuitously uh, because he was in so many movies in my youth uh, and uh, started out, all three of them in a basic way, started out as kind of edgier um, Characters and you know, in movies that often uh, themselves ran against the grain. Uh, I think of Donald Sutherland in early days, and in Robert Altman's *Mash*, for yeah. example, right—an anti-war movie uh, from the Vietnam era. And just, just let me one second, uh, yeah, throw because it, I just it. listened to a podcast about about *Mash*. It's a, a film podcast where they talk about *Mash*, and
1: right. what they are pointing out is how retrograde that movie now now reads. Oh, uh, because it's yeah. so incredibly sexist. There's a lot of You remember there's a character the one of the few african-american characters his nickname is spear chucker oh that's right oh you're taking taking me back and that ultimately this is a film about these these uh these doctors who from a position of power uh are fighting against the (laughs) system but what they're really fighting about fighting for is for their people like themselves to be able to do whatever they want
0: you know it's a great point i think one of our podcast episodes is sure to be this revisiting the past with the lens of present sensibilities. And so we're going to have to remember that one, Josh. Um, Revisiting MASH as a racist and misogynistic movie, though even in its own time, was meant to be against the grain. It was meant to be, you know, critical of what was in, I guess, the military establishment. But uh, yeah, so, okay, file that away. Good digression. Uh, but look, get right through it I, I, you know I think the thing that you know for me is you, know, you get Tom Hanks you know playing Mr. Rogers another uh, person you
1: hate that that's something I didn't realize that you hate mr Rogers uh,
0: I don't hate Mr. Rogers. I hate I the hate. fact that Tom Hanks could be plugged in you know as the, as the beloved everyman character from Forrest Gump to Mr. Rogers. you know I understand Hollywood is make-believe I get it you know but when you see the same actor who we are told are beloved and all American. And, you know, they're plugged into these roles. Morgan Freeman has played the president of the United States 25 times. right? You know? and, um, and so it just, it, it's irksome, folks. That's the, the word of the day is, is irksome. I could go longer on this, but the point of this segment is to just vent I believe it's like a little therapy here. I like so, it. I mean, yeah, once you turn, guys you turn me a little bit. I, I will say. Look, about, I think hatred is a strong word. It's,
1: it's strong. It's it's done for effect in this case. But um, what I will say about Tom Hanks is yeah. his obsession with constantly making stuff about World War II. Him and Spielberg, <laughs> they need to get over it. I, there's another Tom Hanks movie coming out about World War II. It's been everything has been said. There's nothing more to be said about World War II. There's no moment that has not has gone uncovered unless it involves non-white people. Those moments have been vastly undercovered, but uh, uh, everything that could be covered about World War II has been covered, specifically by Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg. By the way, if you took every other World War II movie out, they would still have it covered. Um, and uh, enough.
0: Only Spielberg could do the D-Day invasion with a warm glow of right. backlighting. You know. Um, Yeah, I don't know. They just get overexposed, uh, saturated, and they start sleepwalking through their roles, you know. When I saw Donald Sutherland doing an English accent for side (laughs) and prejudice, you know, that was all she wrote. for me. Sorry, Donald Sutherland. You do not get to do that. What about Kiefer, though? How do you feel about Kiefer? Mm. I think that's a whole separate podcast.
1: Okay, yeah, yeah.
0: Next, Next episode.
1: All right, I'm going to take the uh, the love section of this today. Uh, we'll call it love, or or just something we want to recommend, something that's been bringing us some some joy, some good feelings. I'm going to recommend a piece of music. And this is an album uh, that's now 10 years old. This is the reason I thought of this. It, it just has its 10-year anniversary, and it's uh, an album called The Monitor by a band called Titus Andronicus. I think I sent you that, uh, that link a little bit ago. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's one of these albums that... You can't possibly describe it without making it sound like the worst possible thing. Uh, so it's called the monitor because uh, the lead singer watched an episode of uh, Civil War by uh, who's the documentary? I'm thinking of. Who does all that? Ken
0: stuff. Burns. Ken Burns,
1: yeah. He saw an episode, and it's specifically one about the Battle of Hampton Roads, uh, which I believe you're the American historian here, right? Yeah. You have every correct. Civil War battle memorized, as yes. I assume that's what American historians do in grad school.
0: I have a, I have a vast and encyclopedic knowledge yeah. of Civil War Arcania. Yeah.
1: I, I imagine that when you get do your uh, your exams in grad school, if you're an American historian, they just ask you they just name a battle and you have to talk about it. They so don't forth.
0: actually give us exam questions like they just have mm-hmm. us recite the Pledge of Allegiance. You
1: got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. That that was also in there. But uh, yeah. so apparently, Battle of Hampton Roads is the the battle between. Naval battle between the two iron-sided warships? the Merrimack and the Monitor. Yes. ironclads. Okay. <laughs> and so what he got out of that episode was that it was this long, bloody battle. Uh, in the end, both sides declared, vi- declared victory, and both sides uh, went away thinking they had won. But really, there was no winners. There was just a lot of death and destruction. Mm-hmm. And so he, that's where he starts with that. He calls the, the album The Monitor, and he kind of takes this Civil War theme and then applies it to Interpersonal interactions and this idea that we always want to declare winners in these these interactions, um, and so the, the whole album is is this kind of uh, uh, reflection on this period in his life where he was in this relationship. He had moved to uh, Massachusetts from New Jersey, and it all was falling apart. And uh, and so the album ends up being, you know, every song or at least a lot of the songs begin with uh, you know speeches from Abraham Lincoln and. Uh, you know, other Civil War figures that are recited by his friends in kind of appropriate period period uh, voices. Uh, there is a song called The Battle of Hampton Roads, uh, but it's all about his own personal Civil War that he's waging against his own feelings of inadequacy and feelings of depression and feelings of, uh, uh, you know, just helplessness in, in, in this world. And uh, somehow it works. It sounds so like the know, worst possible thing. There's there's bagpipes at various points. Uh, but it also bagpipes. takes this kind of Springsteen-esque, you know, uh, you know Is Eastern there New a Jersey. train whistle? Uh, that's a good question. I'm going to have to okay. go back through and then see. If you know, it
0: well, in the age of Hamilton, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda's yeah. you know, brilliant adaptation of an otherwise, you know, wonky, kind of dorky chapter of American history to the the popular stage, Titus Andronicus. Has yep. I think one upped him by taking the battle of the ironclads and found in that a metaphor for our our contemporary relationships. Yeah. So I thank you. Is this this is a kind of your music tip for the week? Would you say that's
1: my yeah, it's just something I was reading about it because of the 10 year anniversary. I have the record, so I put the record on, I hadn't listened to it in a little while, and uh, you know, it's one of those I don't know if, if you're the same way with music, but. You know, there's music that's happy, there's music that's sad, but there's sad music that makes me happy. You know, you know that Mm -hmm. feeling? Called the because sure. Yeah. um, You know, you get something out of it. It it brings out feelings.
0: You know, um, it it does not always work, though. You know, a few years ago, Elton John and the late, great Leon Russell did an album together with a song called The Battle of Shiloh. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I was a Delton John fan, like everybody else growing up, top 40 music, etc. cetera. I've seen the biopic, the recent biopic. But I got to say, it didn't work. It didn't translate in this case, right. you know, with this, this English dude singing about the devastation and heartbreak of the battlefield of Shiloh. I, I don't know. So I think, you know, good for you, Titus Andronicus. It's not Sir Elton himself. Couldn't make it
1: <laughs> Couldn't make it work. What about uh, the night they drove old Dixie down?
0: Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. You know what? The Canadians. Consisting another podcast
1: episode. <laughs> yeah. There's Canadians also uh, idealizing yeah. the Civil War. Yeah. There you go. All right. Well, that's been Love and Hate. Uh, but let's now turn to our, our main focuses this, this week. And this is a, a longstanding conversation we've been having. Um, Chris is, Can I ask is, listeners
0: yes. to send you the angry letters regarding the uh, Morgan Freeman, Tom Hanks,
1: yeah, send it to me, of Chris Badgett um, yeah. at American River College. Thanks. Uh, I'm sure it will get to me. And, and we're talking about snail mail, right? I don't want emails. Yeah, yeah. You actually have to write a letter. Um, exactly. It, it will get to us eventually.
0: It's a long, handwritten remonstrance.
1: Right, we were just talking about the Civil War, right? What do we think when we think of the Civil War? We think of these, these letters from soldiers to their mothers. Uh, and so, yeah, I wanted that, that kind of style if you're going to complain. Um, so as, as I think I mentioned, uh, you, your background is in American history. Uh, you've kind of made transition at various points to, to world history. And I think just generally have, have, you know, in the last, what, 15, 20 years, have started to think more as a global historian than, than maybe your training.
0: Uh, Correct, I, yeah, I needed to teach world history in order to find employment yes. at one point. Right. So I was, mo- I was motivated, you might say. Right,
1: but it had an impact in the way you thought about
0: history. It had a great deal to do Everything to do with how I've come to see history now, yes. And specifically
1: what you've come to believe is that the U.S. History Survey, the, the backbone of, of any history department, probably the one that brings in more students than the other? Is that fair to say?
0: I think so. I think it's if, if there's anything such as uh, you know, a standard offering, you know, a kind of set piece in the curriculum of higher education, and, and for that matter, K-12, it's, um, you know, it's a U.S. history survey. Yes.
1: So your, your view that you come to then is that the U.S. history survey, which as we just talked about, is maybe
0: the core of, of history departments. Uh, it's the spinal column in the vertebrae of curriculum. Huh? Right. <laughs> and
1: as a spinal column, you want to uh, video game style reach into the body of these history departments and tear out that spine. You want to get yeah. rid of the U.S. history survey. Correct. So that seems like a radical thing, uh, but this is history against the grain, so I guess that makes, makes some sense. So let's talk about why, why that is. Let, let, maybe let's do a little bit of, of, this is about history. Let's talk about your history, and, and the way your views of the US History Survey changed, You know, from your, your youth as a young idealistic scholar, to your, uh, to your now veteran status, having done this for, for a number of years, And what is it you saw over the course of that, I think you said 30 years of teaching that that led you to this this, this view of the the survey?
0: Well, you know, when I came up through graduate school, um, the study of history was undergoing a a kind of revolution, if you will, in its own right. Uh, That is a class of post-war historians uh, in Europe and America uh, influenced by what, Uh, you know, anthropologists and sociologists and others and other disciplines have been doing uh, were determined to kind of turn history on its head from the way history had always been written, that is, as a study of mostly famous people, of elites, of the powerful, uh, and the words they spoke or uttered or wrote, uh, to understanding uh, history from the bottom up, you might Mm. say. The people uh, without histories, uh, to study the poor, the working people, uh, racial minorities, women, uh, that is those who typically hadn't invited, been invited to the party. So, you know, as a grad student, I was, I was fired with the zeal of what we now call social justice, finding the histories of people without history. And I myself uh, wrote my, uh, all my grad work, my doctoral dissertation, my early published stuff, Uh, on the abolitionist movement uh, before the Civil War, uh, that is the movement to end slavery, because I was interested in, you know, how a grassroots movement to overturn that institution, to take on the rich and the powerful and the politically influential, you know, how it was created. In effect, seeing the abolitionist movement as the first civil rights movement in American history, a mass movement that brought white and black together on terms of uh equality so i approached the u.s survey that way josh you know i assumed that you could teach american history in a kind of um you know a kind of challenging uh challenging of power of can say, look america is more than just its fantasy elites, its president's you know, it's great military leaders, et cetera. You know, it's, it's working people, it's immigrants, it's uh, racial minorities, it's the history of women. And, uh, and I thought that would really, you know, be sufficient. But uh, here I am, you know, all these years later, and I realize, you know, it isn't. Uh, And, you know, typically, when people talk about us history and the problems of U.S. history they they assume that you can fix it within the boundaries of the subject itself but what i'm here today to say is you can't we have to get rid of it in fact what i'm going to suggest and and this is for my conservative you know political friends is it the same problem with nations and borders uh, and and then the reason we have to build walls and and wage wars over borders is the same problem with teaching history with borders. We need history without borders, because as long as we define it as U.S. history, the, United, the history of the United States, we're stuck figuratively and literally within those borders. And And what are borders? I mean, borders are constructs. Borders are things we make up and we invest them with meaning but they are ultimately constructs. And the problem with US history as a bordered construct is that it forces us to accept a whole bunch of really bad uh, and faulty premises about the subject, such that even if you take that more antagonistic stance, you know, and, and, and wanna give it to the man, so to speak, you're still stuck with those damn borders and you're ultimately doing the service of a bordered history.
1: Yeah, that's I am in total agreement. And so my, my own background is in world history. Um, so in my own research and writing and teaching I never felt never had that same sense of constraint, you know, to the nation state. And uh and so I, I just don't never had the connection with that US survey I guess that, that you had. I think even in undergrad, I think I maybe took like the the colonial American history class and like that. But that was it. That's the only U.S. history class I think I, I think I ever took in in uh, college. I may have had like a U.S. history of U.S. social movements or something like that um, at, at UC Santa Cruz, but I just I didn't have that same uh, kind of wasn't steeped in that same in that same narrative. Uh, and so it's it's fascinating for me to hear you talk about it, uh, who had such a different experience with it, and then has had to teach within this framework that ultimately comes to be seen. You, you've come to see as as really. Um, it just can't be constructive any longer. It's not, it's not doing anything good at, at this point in history. And you know, my own kind of historical obsession has always been this idea of narrative, and how narrative, You know, this is not my own original idea, but it's something I've, I've become very passionate about, is that narrative constructs history, it doesn't represent history. And things like these surveys are the perfect example of that, that what the surveys are is a, a structure within which you have to teach history. And to get outside of that structure, um is it can be very very difficult when there's a curriculum that you're supposed to cover there's these key events you're supposed to cover uh when there's these these ultimately this these set of ideas that you're supposed to get across about what the nation is and what it means and why it's important and all these things and you can you know in your own work and try to counter that narrative as much as you can but i think especially in u.s history our students come in with that structure already in their heads um, you know you've talked about the logo map which I wasn't even familiar with that idea until you, you, you I think we, we talked about it a little bit. But, uh, you know, just yeah, that, that, that
0: outline. Daniel Limber-Vars, uh uses that in his book uh, How to Hide an Empire, yeah. the logo map. Yeah, right. we can come back to that if you want. But yeah, well, I mean, and you said it, I mean, even, even world history surveys, let alone the national, the nation state surveys, also approach in the typical curriculum model the subject uh, in a chronological fashion, mm-hmm. from you know, from early to recent, you know, there's a, there's a movement, a kind of linear movement through time, that keeps the instruction going in a certain direction as it right. were. And what what I'm going to suggest for U.S. history, and this is not you know a thought original to me, but I I just want to include it as part of the problem, is that when you have that sense of direction of linearity, that it almost embeds In the minds of the students, certainly, but also even those who teach the subject, uh, a a kind of basic view of progress in some way—that you're making progress. Like if you take a family trip and you start out in the family van, and you know you drive out of Folsom, California, and you're headed toward the Grand Canyon, each road marker you pass gets you closer to your goal, your destination. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really problematic because, as we see now, living as we do in an age of plague. Yeah. uh and pandemic that we somehow assume these things are behind us. Right. You know, that they're from a you know an an older time somewhere along that chronology in the past. Uh but you know if we want to find different metaphors, you know, a river turns and bends, in some ways right now we're closer to the 14th century than we are maybe the 18th century in regard to public health scares and that sort of thing. You know, so That's the other problem I would suggest with the survey format, especially the U.S. survey format.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I was just looking, I'm looking for some notes, but, you know, there's that famous uh, Martin Luther King Jr. quote um, that uh, the arc of of history is, what is it? I'm Um, blanking. And it bends towards justice. The moral arc of the universe is long and it bends towards justice. Yeah. And that it's quoted so often, it's it's one of the wrongest things he's ever said. And I, <laughs> yeah. and I think I don't think he even believed that So I think it, I, I was looking for this quote from a letter from Birmingham Jail, where he basically says the opposite, uh, which said history has no has no direction um, except that which we can apply to it. Uh, right. But I, I yeah, I'm not oh here. It is time itself is neutral; it can be used either constructively or destructively. Human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability.
0: Nice.
1: Right, and that's that's such a better and more accurate description of what history is than this idea that the moral of the universe is along and it bends towards switch. Right. No, which...
0: I, I love that, and in fact, I'm glad you mentioned MLK because getting back to the idea of the U.S. nation state and the national history, you know, it, uh, Martin Luther King is a good example of why I realized ultimately you can't fix it within the confines of the national boundaries, and and here's what I mean. Because even conservatives who are very resistant to the sort of adversarial approach to history that I mentioned earlier, in other Mm -hmm. words, taking what I'll call the taking on the man approach to U.S. history, conservatives have a a real problem with that, right? Uh, And in recent, uh, I have an example for you, in a recent study from the Hoover Institution at Stanford, you know, what traditionally seen as a kind of conservative think tank, right? The writers of this report, the famous um, uh, vaudeville team Davenport and Lloyd, (laughs) writers, big fans of them, yeah, yeah. Davenport and Lloyd from the Hoover Institution uh, report in 2019, you know, talked about, for example, you know, Martin Luther King as an example of why that taking on the man uh, is is wrong. You know, that, in other words, as if Martin Luther King proves, ultimately, you know, we have a national holiday and we have, you know, a kind of uh, baseline respect and we, and we teach students the story of the Montgomery bus boycott and Rosa Parks and a letter from a Birmingham jail. And that somehow, uh, and all of that on its own is, is certainly fine, but when, when packaged in the boundaries of, of a national history, it all becomes a kind of palliative, you know, which suggests, see, it's going in the right direction. Right. You know, in other words, Martin Luther King becomes important, not in and of himself, and certainly not as part of a larger picture of, you know, the struggle for liberation, you know, in the age of anti-colonialism or something like that globally, but rather as a kind of punctuation mark for American history, you know, from Thomas Jefferson to Martin Luther King, that sure, the arc is long, but it's bending toward justice. And, and then, you know, that becomes its own reinforcement of how exceptional America is and ultimately how the American pageant, as uh, one famous textbook was called, is, is going in the right direction. Right. Yeah, it's funny yeah.
1: because e- even in my world history classes where, you know, I talk a lot about the slave, the transatlantic slave trade, not necessarily the United States, but just the, the slave trade in general. I'll have students who write stuff like, uh, uh, and then we abolish slavery. And first of all, who's we in the, the context of world history class? <laughs> but, but this the idea you want to get credit for abolishing this thing that you wrote into your own constitution. You don't get credit for getting rid of the thing that you brought to bear in the first place, right?
0: Yeah. And, and, and actually, who gets credit? uh, Abraham Lincoln, yeah. you know, it says if white people at that point can give themselves a pat on the back for doing the right thing, you know, at long last, sorry about all the other stuff, but ultimately we rectified that it's the white Messiah yeah. once again, which gets me back to Steven
1: Spielberg, right? Cause he, he makes the movie Lincoln, which by the way, I should note I've never seen. Um, but I do like to, to make fun of, um, <laughs> and that very much, right. According to what I've read about the movie, clearly not seen, but, uh, Right. is that it very much presents this view of, of you know, much of white politicians, yes. uh, you know, um, uh, solving this problem through their own will and through their own efforts and uh, cutting out Absolutely. those other voices who are part of it.
0: Absolutely. And, and we can talk about Hollywood as, as a mythologizing, you know, sort of um, backstop you know, for this idea of American exceptionalism and American history going in a progressive direction. Uh, If you doubt me, just watch Hollywood movies that treat things like the Civil War, the Western expansion, World War II, et cetera. Um, Let me give you two quick examples, though, getting back sort of to the issue of slavery or or Martin Luther King. Mm -hmm. So not only the Hoover Institute, as I mentioned, but, but something in the popular culture, the New York Post, uh, talking really. about They were lamenting this sort of loss of patriotic, you know, fervor in the teaching of U.S. history and, and suggesting that it that it's, um, completely misses the point. They said Martin Luther King's protests were effective, uh, not because somehow they proved that American history was all illegitimate, but rather because they were grounded in the idea, and this is a quote, that America was supposed to be something specific that the constitution said so and that we weren't living up to those ideals so for the, the the editorialist in the new york post that's what martin luther king proves ultimately that america was right all along and the fact that king was able to survive his struggles and and uh, and to become this iconic figure is further proof of that so so then i turned toward uh i guess a guy who would be considered not a conservative uh but a much beloved yale historian uh by the name of david blight yeah i I listened to his uh his lectures on the civil war okay yeah Yeah, so you know an acknowledged scholar david blight who i kind of put in the same category with morgan freeman donald sutherland and tom hanks that is someone who's wildly overexposed and who, however edgy he might've been in the beginning, ultimately was so watered down and uh, homogenized for the, the popular taste that he, for me, kind of lost his his relevance, mm-hmm. okay? Um, and what he says, you know, coming from not the position of the, of the post one would assume, but from a more sort of stereotypical liberal Yale professor, he said, the point is not to teach American history as a chronicle of shame and oppression, far from it. Because Blight's a guy who says, no, we have to teach slavery, right? We can't somehow water it down. He said, but the point is to tell American history as a story of real human beings, of power, of vast and geographical, uh, geographical expansion, of great achievements, as well as great dispossession of human brutality and human reform. The point is also not to merely seek the story of what we are not, but of what we are. And and so here's where the, the alarms start going off for me. A land and a nation built in great part out of the economic and political systems forged in or because of slavery and its expansion. Slavery has much to do with the making of the United States. This can and should be told as a story about human nature generally, and about this place and time specifically, Americans were not and are not inherently racist or slave owning. Uh, so, on there. here again, you know, it's like, sure, we can talk about these unfortunate things, but in the end, we have to know, as my students often write in the conclusions of their essays, lacking any more sure footed assessment that's what made us who we are today with the implication being that who we are today on that linear you know arc a long arc is better than we were whatever we were then
1: that you saying that just put shivers down my spine because even in the context of a world history class i'll be doing uh because i do the uh both parts of world histories i'll go from the beginning of time basically to uh to the present in two classes and talk about the, the agricultural revolution I like to present the idea that it was a bad thing, that it uh, was the point where everything went wrong for humanity, and a lot of students will write in their essays, you know, there were some downsides to the agricultural revolution, but without it, we would not be who we are today. <laughs> who are we today? and Why is that good? And, you know, you also brought up this idea of, of, of human nature, I think, one of the guys you quoted, uh, was, it, uh, uh, was it Blight that, that talked about human nature?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's not a thing. Human nature is not a thing. We are, we are part of societies and how we behave depends on the kind of society we construct around us. And again, going back to the example of the agricultural revolution, these things which supposedly are part of human nature, this competitiveness, this vindicativeness, this uh, cruelty. We don't really see many examples of that in hunting and gathering societies, right? Because they're based on different principles than these later societies based on you know ambitious, expansive states and all these kind of things. Um, and then certainly when we get to these kind of capitalist industrial states of the 19th, 20th centuries, human nature is not a thing. It's it's a, a result of the societies we build around us, the economic systems we build around mm-hmm. us. Um, so for these these yep. historians to be presenting these ideas is...
0: Well, I think because there's this a priori assumption, if you'll allow me that. No, that, that is allowed, that, sorry. That there is something uh, called human nature and that it's fundamentally... Uh, progressive in some way you mm-hmm. know and so the, the history that follows from it is therefore also ultimately progressive it's the tail wagging the dog instead of humans being the product of history they become sort of the the directors of a historical progression that flows from their basic integrity in some right. way you know? well so i actually see it a little bit differently because
1: I think the way that people often use human nature is, is is to excuse our bad actions. It's like, oh, that's bad, but it's human nature. What are we going to do about it? You you see, like you watch sports and you'll see like a, you know, watch a football game and somebody dr- jumps offside on fourth and one and gives the other team a fourth, a uh, first down. The, the announcer says, well, that was just human nature. Like I don't think jumping off sides on fourth and one is part of human nature. I don't think that goes back to the uh, evolutionary process of our brains or anything like that. That's a, uh, like a very recent
0: phenomenon, but... Uh... No, I, yeah, I agree, but you know, when you have a David Blight saying, well, there's nothing inherently racist, you know, about human nature, what I, what I guess I'm saying is the view there, the a priori right. assumption is that somehow, that yeah, we do bad things, but that's not to be confused with that long arc that bends toward Right, 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 yep. you No, know, in other words, we get, we're sort of misbehaving children, you know, who uh, in the main find, you know, something valorous or, you know, something noble about the ultimate, you know, construct of our, our history. And right. So, you know, I, I, so I totally agree with you. I mean, I think we have to put all of that stuff aside. I think someone who we both like, who did a pretty good job of that is Yuval Noah Harari, right? Mm-hmm. Who, in his book *Sapiens*, you know the the Israeli historian who, you know, was basically, uh, you know, coming from an almost kind of Buddhist standpoint, saying no impermanence. You know, we 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 change is the essential fact of our history. It's not some long arc, some thread of something. You know, we create, we we construct, you know, or invent right these right. traditions that are impermanent and and contingent and so I, I would put u.s history and and the nation state history very much in that category of the cons, the construct the the invented tradition and as long as we use it i mean look you know i, I found some verbiage from the american historical association regarding the purpose of the u.s history course right oh which boy. really sort of gained can't like this after the civil war that we were talking about as the nation sought reconciliation and thus a national story that could somehow reconcile north and south alike right, right, right. and then in the early 20th century in the age of great immigration you know non uh, native english speaking non protestant christian peoples coming in large numbers to the united states we needed that unifying thread of national history so those folks would know how to assimilate. And so the American Historical Association, which is, you know, which is the great sort of uh, professional organization of uh, historians in America, said the development of history as a source of patriotism in a field of study exemplified in the publication of the Civil War records and in the founding of the American Historical Association itself caused many persons to feel that American history should be taught to the children at several grade levels. By 1903, the teaching of American history in the elementary schools was required by various statutory devices in 30 states. And then it went on to say that the various topics could be offered, you know, were um, uh, included, in other words, uh, things like um, Indian life stories of national heroes, special celebrations, biographical studies, and European backgrounds. Well, I'm, I'm fired I mean, up. I want to take this class. That sounds, well, you know, you think about it, Indian life and you think, yeah, OK, but then the very next point is stories of national heroes. And the great mythology of US history is the westward movement, right? where you have those who are exterminating Native peoples Mm -hmm. who you have to learn about them before the westward movement apparently because if you learn about them during or after Then the very heroes who you're teaching in the next chapter are very busy exterminating them and then being raised to the level of cultural icons whether it you know in the mythology of the West or it be the cowboy You know or the pioneer or for that matter, you know naming all of
1: our our cities and towns and streets after vanquished Indian tribes, right? (laughs) What you talking and, and,
0: is this? and that's where something like Confederate statues fits in, because even if you're going to do the history of, of African-American people and the struggle, you know, through slavery and that sort of thing, and see it as David Blight wants to see it as the triumph of human spirit, then you're putting up Confederate statues in the very next breath, you know, valorizing the, the people who tried to enforce the system of slavery, you know, who right. fought. And, and even gave their lives in defense of that system of slavery. And so how do you reconcile that in some rubric of national progress? I'm just not buying it. There's if there's we, bad people on both sides. Isn't that the, isn't that our president's answer?
1: The there, are bad, there are bad people on both sides. That's all we need to understand. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah that kind of, yeah, that kind of binary, you know, right. tell both sides. It's like, well, you know, as historians, there's not two sides to history. You know, history is a mess. History's you know, complexity of, of, um, of causes and effects. So, yeah, so tear, but here's the thing, you know, if we tear the, the boundaries off the US history survey, then we're not limited by that American pageant, that teleological direction of history. And we can start seeing things like slavery in the, in the broader global context of our species. Uh, whether it be unfreedom, you know, globally at the time of American enslavement, you know, Russian serfdom or, you know, systems of unfreedom in Africa. I mean, the stuff that you teach routinely, Right. right, you know, we start seeing it not as this hermetically sealed, ultimately vindicative, you know, sad but necessary story of America's greatness, but instead we see it as, you know, an epic of you know social and economic systems that routinely saw large populations of people you know oppressed under the weight of, of military and economic authority you know right how different is so, American history look that way
1: what, what I'm just
0: I love what you're saying
1: I agree with what you're saying just on a on a practical level though what what are you proposing replaces the U.S. history survey? Like what what would that look like? Is it just more world history classes? Are there world history classes, or is it a U.S. in, you know, in a world historical context kind of idea? Or w- what is it? Because I think one of the things that, that you said that's just struck me is uh just the way that indigenous people end up in these U.S. history classes—they're there just to be vanquished, right? You're yes. introducing them, so and you then can then talk save. about how they're vanquished. Yeah. Um, uh, and so there's got to be a better way of doing that. So what does that what does that look like in your in your
0: mind? Yeah. Well, if we have a multi-centered history, you know, then we can treat the story of native peoples on their own terms without having to fit them in that rubric. So, first thing again, a boundaryless history. What does that look like? Well, we have to use some kind of organizing construct. Right. It could be thematic. It doesn't even have to be chronological. You know, in other words, as a global historian, I think you can appreciate, you know, how in some ways how limiting those standard periodizations are,
1: Mm -hmm. you
0: know, where we might want to talk about the birth of agriculture, you know, five to 7,000 plus years ago, in a context of of modern uh, agricultural systems, environmental practices and Mm such, so that we're not stuck in the confines of a modern era construct either you know we can talk about the challenges of people you know in the uh, the neolithic revolution that historians are uncovering all the time you know the kind of tension between settled towns and you know what become pastoral peoples you know with with conflicts of the modern age you know what we call the modern age because you know ultimately isn't I mean, look, it isn't what, what we're trying to get our students to have is a greater sense of their own sort of historical um, existence, not in a prefabricated, you know, construct called U.S. history, but in, in the last seven to 10,000 years of human history, mm-hmm. that these are not necessarily new conflicts you know there uh, the, the problem of civilization we might call it you know right. let's let's create a survey that we call the problem of civilization
1: so you know, negative though come on
0: you know the neolithic revolution to martin luther king <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> well that, you know that's interesting because you know a few years ago um we were both kind of into this this idea of big history um and uh, i think both of us read that book maps of time by david christian right yeah. And, you know, so we kind of talked about that as a department. I think we actually had one of our department meetings where we talked about that. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I started kind of coming around to is that there is some, some value in doing this kind of big. And if you don't know, big history is, kind of takes history, not just from humanity, but really literally goes back to geologic time and mm-hmm. the formation of the earth. And I think in that book, you don't even get to humanity until, I don't know, what halfway through or something like that. Yeah, it's right. a long way into it. Um And then, even when it gets to humanity, you are just talking about those kind of big structures and those big big things, and um what you kind of lose of that is 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 humanity a little bit, right? that we all just become wrapped up in these big structures, and we lose that sense of humans kind of working for things and working against things, and social movements cannot appear in a history of in a big history and um I and mean, I, ultimately, I think the answer is. Seeing things only from that perspective of big history is not enough. Seeing things only from the perspective of U.S. history is not enough. Seeing things only from the perspective of the local community is not enough. This is kind of what I focus on in my world history class is that ultimately what world history has to do is is be able to shift perspectives all the time. To zoom out and see the entire world at, at once for a little bit, but also zoom in and see how that actually affects the lives of people and to zoom even, in, even further and see that this is a community that's, that's responding to these effects, and this is what it means to them, and then zoom out again and talk about how that connects them to other communities around the world who may never, maybe we're not in contact with, but as the kind of shared humanity are going through some of the same uh, challenges as as whatever local community you started with. So, you know, starting big, getting to that medium view, and then zooming in to the specific view, I think is the thing that, that you, you gotta be able to do.
0: Well. No, I have two thoughts on that, and I think you're absolutely right. let me first of all, let me throw you a because uh, you know we're both baseball fans. Let me throw you a two scene fastball right down the middle of the plate. no rise, no break I gotta to calculate my launch angle though i got I mean you, the right you're launch angle judge okay, yeah, no' here it comes you know, take what's happening now at the time of our podcast. we're living in a global pandemic uh, fears of, of the coronavirus uh and the subsequent you know um affliction called covid-19 uh we've all become more versed in mortality rates and well you as a global historian i imagine without without even having your notes in front of you could talk about the history of pandemics you know over the last say 800 years you know and how pandemics are themselves you know the result of growing intercourse between peoples across regions but also the growing you know um sort of relationship in the age of, of agriculture, domesticated mm-hmm. animals and such. And, and so, you know, instead of, as our current president would have it, you know, framing this as the Chinese virus,
1: yeah,
0: you know, within, with explicitly nationalistic as, as if we can build those figurative borders or maybe even literal borders high enough and, and stalwart enough to keep out things like viruses. So Instead of seeing it as as a product of our modern, you know, uh, know, mode of organizing societies, you know, globally and such and and exchange networks and cross-cultural interactions and such, you know, see it as in that construct of the nation state as something that was done to us. Right.
1: It's an example also.
0: People from coming here. Yeah. uh so that's that's one thing i'd say and then you know i mean just quickly the other thing i would say the the because the the objection to this what we're suggesting i think is always going to be but how then will students know about the country and the laws and the traditions of the place they live in i mean what we used to call citizenship even when i was in school in california grade school you you got a grade called citizenship yeah and the u.s survey was thought to be in the support of developing good citizenship. Well, I've already explained why I think that's, you know, a serious problem. You know, but what I would counter, and here's where it becomes, you know, a little dicey, if the purpose of the survey was to reinforce the claims of an American nationalism, I'm effectively saying those claims are illegitimate and we are poorly served. And not just because our students don't actually learn history, and you, all you have to do is scratch the internet, do a Google search, superficially defined reams of data showing how little American history people know who have taken American history. Mm -hmm. Never mind that. But that the thing that they do come away with is this sense that it's all somehow better and right. And therefore, isn't that what we want? And, And so you take away the American History Survey, the US National Survey, then you take away that. And what coheres us as a people, you know, what gives us you know, common ground. And I think that that is not a serious objection for me. I think it's headed in, I think there's all kinds of problems with it. And so for me, we're actually helping ourselves by getting rid of those borders uh, and giving ourselves a chance to understand the world that we live in. It doesn't matter how nationalistic you are, how, how you build that wall, that virus is coming for you and this care about borders a fighting, yeah a fighting chance to understand that, you know right uh
1: i was just looking at you did you read benedict anderson back in the day was that something that sounds uh, across, right yeah that's a uh, you know uh imagine communities yes okay so i was just flipping through that book the other day i'm really just trying to impress you with the fact that i'm reading uh reading real historical sources here no uh i was flipping <laughs> the book and he, he makes this point that uh that the, you know, one of the big ironies of, of this modern world is that the nation itself has become such a foundational element of who we are and how we identify and how the right. world's divided and all these borders. And so as historians, we understand the history of nationals and we watch it form. We watch it be created through a very specific process in the 19th century and 20th centuries, um, but then also have to write about it as something that is important even as we can watch it being created in this very short time frame, And so how do, you, how do you get across? I think it's the same thing with race also, right? You can say that race is not a biological fact, but people place importance on it. And as long as they do, it takes on that veneer of
0: reality, right? Yeah, perception uh, is reality. That
1: yeah, effect. I mean, I think actually going back to Harari, who you mentioned earlier, he's got this idea of, um, you know, there's some things that are objective, like, you know, you can, we can, I can touch my computer screen, my hand's not gonna go through it. There's things right. that are subjective, that are just ideas that don't have reality, you know, beyond our own minds. And there's things that he says that are intersubjective, that exist in so many of our minds at once that it's not enough to just say this thing's not real, because it's only going to disappear if you get some mass of people to, to agree that things not real. Right. right? Yeah. So the nation is is an example of that. Race is an example of that. These things that are so embedded in what what our world has become. Right. We're constantly fighting, to use term. we're fighting against the grain when we, we want to talk about these things as, as you know, invented realities. Well, Again, the, they,
0: yeah, and that's the point. They are invented. They do have a history. And however embedded they seem in our own time, they are, they are contingent. You know, they're, they're historically created fictions shared by large numbers of people who communicate and and embed these notions through practice and ritual. I mean, look, I'm just saying, you know, like when we talk about race in America, you know, uh, the idea of getting back to human nature that race, well, you, you're not going to change people. You know, people are tribal, people are racist, uh, and then you're stuck with that, you know, except we know that's not true. Right. I mean, we know that these things are contingent. On time and place, and in particular, what we call American racial thought, racial identities, racism, you know, was very much the product of a series of choices made, you know, in the 17th century and 18th century, um, in a marketplace, uh, in a profit making economy, you know, using uh, imported labor. I mean, all that stuff, you know. So I think you know, it's not that we're stuck with this and therefore, you know, we might as well just live with it or something. You know, the idea is you want to, you want to change the history, change the metaphor, you know? Yeah, um, great point. Right. You know? And so the metaphor starts with the nation state. Mm-hmm. And if, if people want to maintain patriotic notions and look, I, I'm not worried about that, you know, right? <laughs> I mean, I, It can hold its own, you know, but what I'm what I'm worried about is inculcating a kind of really a kind of brainwashing about the exceptionalism, about the the arc, about the direction, you know, without at the same time really teaching our students history. We know we're we're teaching them catechism. Uh, even if it's a more slightly more progressive catechism, you know, with civil rights being emphasized mm-hmm. or something, it's still a catechism in service, you know, of the state. Uh, and so until we pull back the boundaries, we're not going to have a series. We're always going to be using that usable past, that teleology um, and we're not going to be teaching history because we know damn well we make a deal with the devil. You know, if I'm 33 years into the game and I've been teaching this subject all along, you know, thinking I could somehow, you know, get past it. But you can't. And, yeah. and we know that. I think we do know that as historians. Absolutely. Uh, so who, who, who if not us, you know, uh, it's going to make the argument.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, what that makes me think of is just accountability. Who are we accountable to? Um, I don't know if, you know, if anybody's listening to this, I don't know what your jobs are, what your background is, but as you know, uh, you know, historians in a, in a college system, we have tenure. We're not going to get fired yet for saying the things we, we say. Um, you know, there's not a lot of control over the curriculum we teach. We're not told which textbooks to assign. We can do these various things. We can take easy paths. It's much easier, certainly to just do the, the, the catechism as you, as you called it. Um, to just tell the traditional story, but the people were ultimately accountable is to ourselves. And do we want to be part of the system that's continuing to, to tell the story over and over again and inculcate this generations after generations of students with the same, same tired story, um, or do we want to push against that and you know, get across an idea, a set of ideas that better reflects reality and not just these human constructs which have become so much part of how we think about our own reality.
0: Well, this is history against the grain, after all. Absolutely. Uh, do you want to end with a yeah? Uh, some some thought, some food for thought with yeah. uh, so your favorite historian Walter Benjamin. My, my favorite historian, as of three days <laughs> ago. Um,
1: so I came across uh, this uh, this quote a few days ago um, that um, so from Walter Benjamin and uh, a guy I have, I have a deep, deep, deep love for that goes back many, many years to my uh, to my youth. Um, but, uh, he says, he's talking about, um, historians and, uh, and the, the piece is called on the concept of history and he's involved in all these kind of interesting arguments with other historians and other thinkers of whom I don't really know that much about, but he says, um, at one point he regards it as his task, he meaning the historian, the good historian in his mind, he regards it as his task to brush history against the grain. And he's kind of talking about what we're talking about here. And so I saw that quote and it just ultimately right away realized that that was the, you know, the idea we wanted to do as well. We want to do history that goes against the grain. Um, and so I thought I'd end with another quote from Benjamin from the same passage in, uh, on the concept of history. And he says, he's talking about, um, let me find it here. Oh, again, he's making, you know, these arguments against uh, what he calls historicist, Writers, these kind of positivist uh, historians who see history as a history of progress. He says, Who do they empathize with? uh, uh, Sorry, empathize with? Who do these historians empathize with? He says, The answer is irrefutably with the victor. Those who currently rule are, however, the heirs of all those who have ever been victorious. Empathy with the victors thus comes to benefit the current rulers every time. Whoever until this day emerges victorious marches in the triumphal procession in which today's rulers tread over those who are sprawled underfoot. The spoils are, as was ever the case, carried along in the triumphal procession." He goes on and on, but it's just a, a, such a beautiful uh, expression of the kind of things that we're, we're talking about here, that ultimately we don't want to be the ones who empathize with those in power. We want to be the ones who are fighting against this power structure, fighting against it, and, and with the tools we have, which is as instructors, as historians, and so if this podcast goes on, you know, I'm assuming we'll have 10, 15,000 listeners by, by episode two. Is that that fair? Oh, uh, at a minimum. I a mean, minimum, yeah, I'm working on getting some advertisers as well. Uh, we're, because, we're contacting you know, all the
0: people, all the people that would be going to the, the Kings and Warriors basketball games will now be listening to our podcast. Yeah. And that's very true. This
1: is actually just a, uh, this is a Trojan horse because what we really want to talk about is basketball, but there's no basketball to talk about. So we decided <laughs> to talk about history. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, so, you know, the, these ideas of, of who we're supporting when we talk about history, who's, uh, whose values are we getting across. And it's so often in history, what, what we're doing when we talk about history is just presenting the narrative the power structure wants us to, to present. Yep. Um, and so, you know, whatever, wherever, wherever else this, this goes as a podcast, as a discussion, uh, I guess our promise to listeners is that we will do our best to do history that goes against the grain.